Welcome to the Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. My name is Dr. Adriana Popescu. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and leader in the field of mental health, energy psychology, addiction, trauma, and empowerment. In this podcast, we will be exploring mental health from a variety of perspectives, from the spiritual to the shamanic and beyond. What if mental illness isn't everything we think it is? What if everything we see as a pathology is actually a possibility? What else is possible with mental health? Hi everyone, Dr. Adriana Popescu here with you today with another episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. I'm really excited to have with me as my guest today, Mutter Nan Webster. She is a licensed and marriage and family therapist who prides herself in adapting different modalities of healing to her clients' needs. A major component of her therapeutic process involves the integration of Eastern and Western perspectives by incorporating mindfulness-based stress reduction techniques, such as meditation, with psychotherapy interventions, such as eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR, internal family systems, IFS, and relational life therapy, RLT. A certified amino acid therapist, she also supports the use of natural methods for mental health. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, yes. So I always like to start off the show with finding out more about our guests. I'd love to hear more about your background and how you came to do this work. I think your personal experience has really shaped also what you're doing with your clients. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yes. Um, so the interesting thing is when I was in university, I actually was an international business marketing major which is almost the opposite of psychotherapy. And I, I speak fluent German, I speak English, I was taking Japanese and I was really going down that avenue. And at some point, two years into it, I decided I didn't wanna do the cutthroat uh, world of business. And so I looked into what are some different things that I loved and what I liked learning. And I came to the idea of I wanted to help people. And so I ended up switching my majors and um, went into counseling, or it was actually home ec back then. It was under that school, which is hilarious. Wow. No, mm -hmm. I did not do sewing and cooking for you <laughs> old timers who know what home ec is. Um, so I just been in um, the mental health field pretty much ever since. And I did grow up in an ashram and I grew up with international, inter internationally known um, yoga teachers and meditation teachers. And so I grew up in that real kind of woo woo um, world, which is, it's funny because there's like a lot of things that are very mainstream now that I've been doing since I was a little girl or have known about since I was an infant or, you know, young, young child. And so um, over the years, I've just learned to start integrating the two. And it actually was my clients that asked me to integrate it because I used to teach yoga meditation and people would come to my yoga class and then they would end up finding out I'm a therapist and they'd be like, Hey, I want to see you as a client. And then through therapy, they'd be like, well, can you talk more about what you were saying in class? Or so it was actually my clients who were asking me to interweave without really asking me, but asking me to interweave the Eastern philosophies into psychotherapy and mental health. And um, I have found that ever since I've done that, it's just the work has been uh, more meaningful. It's gone smoother. It goes quicker. 
And um, it also allows there to be a sense of, of openness and, and, and um, vulnerability that I find sometimes in just strict mental health techniques can be a little bit on the colder side. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious when you say, you know, that you've integrated yoga and meditation into your practice, um, you know, there's sort of like the pragmatics of um, meditation technique and like actually sitting and, and doing it or guiding someone through a meditation of which you actually have a lot of I, on your website, you actually, um, you know, offer a lot to folks as well. And we're going to put that in the show notes. But I'm curious how also the philosophy, having also studied Eastern philosophy, mm-hmm. how that influences beyond just the practices themselves. Yeah, so so some of the things that I integrate is the concept of Shakti and Bhakti. Shakti is the power and the strength, and Bhakti is the sweetness and the devotion. And so sometimes I'll talk about how we really need both. It's another, it's another way to look at yin and yang. It's just more of a yogic philosophy. And then the other thing too is the perspective of the mind and how the mind is really an entity that is part of our life and it's an organ like all our other organs, but we give our minds a lot of power. And one of the things I talk about often with clients, especially I'll weave it into cognitive therapy is the idea that the yogis believe that the mind thinks in contrast, right, wrong, good, bad, stop, go. And so I'll weave in some of the philosophies that um, Eastern philosophy looks at around our mind and how it thinks in contrast and and how that shows up in our life. And then I often will then weave in this concept that I've been developing over the years of lenses. So like, have you ever, you know, when you go to an optometrist, like, is it A or is it B? Is it C or is it D? And I basically say that all of our past experiences, especially if they have a traumatic imprint on us, it creates a lens. Mm -hmm. So sometimes in our life, when we're really reactive or we're out of control, or we feel like nothing's working, we could be wearing four to five different pair of glasses simultaneously. So if you were just to go pick up a whole bunch of glasses and put them on of different people's, you know, um, prescriptions, you wouldn't be able to see through it. Mm -hmm. It's the same with our emotions. When we're looking at, you know, our partner might say something like, oh, I just, I just need you to leave me alone right now. And the person might think like, oh my God, they're going to abandon me. And oh my God, they're trying to control me. And oh my God, they're, they're never going to speak to me. And oh my God, who do they think they are? And like, there's, that's, that's a whole bunch, there's a few lenses. So you can't actually hear, like you remind yourself, this is someone I love. Yes. Maybe the delivery was a bit poor and they're trying to ask for a timeout. They're trying to regroup themselves, but because we have these lenses, we can't always hear it. Correct. Right. So you work a lot with couples. Um, and I know that like, this is, this is challenging work. Whenever I work with couples, I can find that it's, it's challenging sometimes because you're dealing with two or more people's stuff. I mean, they're bringing in their family history and they're bringing in their life experiences and cultural experiences. And and you're right. Miscommunication seems to be kind of the number one problem in relationships that I see. Mm -hmm. Um, so how, yeah. What are some of the ways in which you work with couples so I do, as you mentioned in the introduction, I do RLT therapy, which is relational life therapy. And it's a model that was developed by um, Terry Real from Boston. 
And he, um, it's a great model. I've learned, I've studied with him for about 13 plus years. And, and you're right. The number one thing people bring couples bring to therapy is communication issues. And it's usually right at the top. And what we do is, is that I work a lot on um, perception. And so meaning that there's, there's facts and then there's what you make up. And that's a perception that that's what you, that's your perspective of what happened. It may not be true. And, and so I'm often working with, when I'm working with, with couples is when something's happened, like if something happened that week, we'll work on working through it. And it's about like facts, what I make up about it, how, what I make up, this is a big, important thing. What I make up is how make, that's what makes me feel how I feel. Yeah. And then we go into what do I want? Mm-hmm. And, and there's a couple pieces I tell people all the time, one thing, one focus, because I, because you get couples and they're like, well, you're late and, and you don't care that you're late and you never take out the trash and you never help with the kids. And it's like, I'll say to the cup, to the client, okay, wait, what's the one objective? What's the one thing you want me to help him change or her change? Well, he, but they do this, this, and this, and this, I go, okay, but you can't change it all. I need one thing first. And so it is that, that piece of really helping people slow down, chunk it down, make it simple. And then you go through the communication wheel, which was originally created by um, Pia Melody. And then Terry Real has used it quite a bit and he's added his, his piece to it. And then I, I use it with my clients as well. And for people who don't know what that is, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So the communication wheel is, is that piece of when you are going to, like when you both are cooled off, you you're back in a relational space, your heart centered, your, which means that you're feeling grounded. You're me- feeling less triggered. You're feeling softer. Then you say to your partner, say, Hey, is this a good time to, to, to check in with you on something? And then you respect, you respect, they may say no. And if they say yes, you say, thank you. If they say no, you say, thank you. When are you available to talk? Yeah. And then, and so when they're available to talk, you can say, you know, this morning when you um, sat down um, at breakfast and you were reading news on your phone and you didn't look at me, these are facts. Mm -hmm. What I made up in my mind is, is that you don't care about me and that you care more about the news than me, which leaves me feeling sad, abandoned. What I would really like is at breakfast, if we could have a period of time that we wouldn't be on our phones and we could have conversation. Right. Yeah. And that's what people are wanting to communicate. But what ends up coming out of their mouth is like all their unresolved trauma, all these distorted lenses they're seeing through. And it's this big emotionally charged situation. And I know in my work with couples, like it's so important to stress out to them, to to stress to them the importance of the timeout Mm -hmm. um, or like, you know, for each partner to have the ability to like walk away from the conflict in the moment to cool off and then to come back in this calmer space. Yeah. So, So it's almost like each partner seems to require on the front end, some calming strategies, some nervous ways to calm their nervous system, ways to mm-hmm. um, get out of that fight, flight, freeze response that, you know, might be activated for them. And so when you, when that shows up for you with your clients, what do you usually advise them to do as far as like that emotional self-regulation? Yeah. So that's a really good point because 
just taking the time out only is not enough if you're leaving and literally ruminating about it the whole time. Right. You're going to come back just as heated, if not worse. Mm-hmm. So um, taking a time out and doing this, it's, I tell people, you got to do your own work. It's so important because it's in your best interest of your relationship. Mm-hmm. And so what that looks like is, is that, you know, you go run your hands under cold water, you wash your face, you know, with warm water and cold, cold water, warm water, you go for a walk. Here's a funny one. You actually drink a big glass of water and then go urinate because it flushes your kidneys and your, and gets your, um, your, your glands moving. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you do that, you can do meditation, you can go for a run, you can go for a, it's a, do some yoga, you can do sun salutations is so easy. You literally go on the internet, you put in sun salutation, you print out their little diagram and you just have it on hand and you do three of them. Mm-hmm. You, 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 you know, if you're really, really freaking out and you're just like completely beside yourself and you can't calm yourself and you're like wanting to pursue them, like sometimes that can happen and you want to pursue your partner, hop in a cold shower. That shocks your nervous system. While you're in the shower, you rub, 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 rub your whole body because what happens is the skin will prickle. And it what, what that does is it brings the blood flow to everywhere in your body and distributes it. Yeah. And it's a way to get grounded. Yeah. Well, we know in that fight, flight, freeze response that something like 70% of the blood flow is going out of your prefrontal cortex, which is your logical thinking mind. And it is going you know, to your extremities to do the fight, the fight or the flight. Right. You know? right. So, so yeah, I'm having techniques. I teach that to my clients as well. Having these cal- nervous system calming techniques is so critical because you're not going to be able to be rational and calm if you're triggered and in that mm-hmm. state. Right. Yeah. 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 And one of the things Terry often says now, it's not just fight, flight, and freeze. It's fight, flight, freeze, and fix. Oh, fix. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in couples. Like the, mm-hmm. like there's always one person who wants to really fix the other person. And that still is a response to your, your anxiousness. Yeah. Like I don't feel safe unless you, until I fix this person and they're yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Okay. So you mentioned trauma before, and, you know, we're here, we are talking about this fight, flight, freeze and fixed response. So when you're dealing with couples or clients who have a history of trauma, how do you work with that? So when I work with couples, um, there's a couple of things. One is depending on how regulated they are, if, if they're pretty regulated and they can really connect to their wise self, even though they have a triggered part, then I will do the work with the cup with the spouse or partner watching. Mm-hmm. And so the way what will happen is I'll say to the uh, to the one partner, is it okay if I work with him or her? Mm-hmm. So I'm getting their buy-in that I'm going to be full solely focusing on them. Mm-hmm. And and so I'll look at them, I'll say that is it okay if I continue this work with so and so? And they'll say, they usually say yes. I say, okay, thank you. And then I say to them, please put up your one-way mirror. Mm-hmm. which means that they're going to put up a bubble around them that they're able to see through it, but they're able to choose what they allow in where they lower their boundary and what they allow to bounce off of that mirror. Mm-hmm. Because it could be while I'm working with one person that what they're saying may trigger the other the partner. Mm-hmm. And it's really important. This is when you're teaching them to be, stay in your wise self, put your one-way mirror up, and hold the boundary. You don't need to take on what they say. If it's not true, then let it bounce off. Right. 
And so when I work with the individual, then within the couple session is it, there's a variety of things I might do. I might do some somatic work, which is the IFS work where I'll have them close their eyes and we'll go, they'll go within and we'll talk, we'll find the part an emotion or a feeling or a sensation. And, and I will guide them through that process of doing the IFS work, which is talking to the inner parts and building internal trust. Mm-hmm. And when you do the work with one part, one person with the partner watching, it can create a real sense of connection and compassion. They might realize like, oh, when this person reacts this way, it's actually their triggered adaptive self, which is trying to protect them. Mm-hmm. Or like, oh, when they react this way and are so wounded in my, with what I did, it's not all me. It actually comes from their own past and it helps the person be more compassionate, not take it so personally. Yes. Yeah. Um, when I do EMDR in a couple session, I will have the other um, person who's not doing the work look away when I'm reprocessing, because as you're reprocessing with the client, with your fingers or with a, a beam, light beam back and forth. If they're watching, even though you haven't set up this, the intervention with them, they'll start to reprocess. So I, I asked them to, to um, move their eyes away and look down to the ground or look at a picture or something else in the room until I'm done reprocessing. And again, it allows them to witness what their partner is doing in their deep healing. Yeah, That's, which is so unique, right? Like, yeah. It's not often that... Um the couple, like one, that one partner would get to witness, you know, the other partner doing that kind of trauma work. I think in conventional couples therapy, they might say, well, go get your own therapist, do your own work on yourself, and then we'll come back together as a couple and, you know, work together. But I think this is really a more unique approach that really I can see could be really powerful. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and it re it also reinforces building trust and compassion and, and curiosity in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't do that if I'm working with a couple who's really just on the outs. You don't know if they're going to stay or leave. It just, it, it, it you just, you gotta, you know, as a therapist, as a, cl- as a clinician, be mindful of that. The other thing I do tell my, my couples is um, whatever is said in here cannot be used as collateral. Mm-hmm. You can't be like, oh, well, yeah, our therapist says that you're so controlling and you're doing that right now. Like, and I say that if you do that, you're undermining the work that I'm doing mm-hmm. and, and then this won't work. Right. right. So it's, it's as a therapist, we have to set boundaries of this is what I'm expecting of you. If you want me to help you with this, this is what I'm expecting. Yes. Yes. And sometimes we have to role model that for clients because our clients don't know what healthy boundaries are and certainly right. don't know how to set them or keep them. Yeah. So. Now, you mentioned two techniques that maybe our audience um, isn't familiar with, um, EMDR and IFS. Can you tell us a little bit more about each? Yes. So EMDR is the bilateral stimulation, which was, um, I don't know the exact story, but it was created by um, a therapist many, many years ago who was working with a client and they found that when they were in distress, their eyes started fluttering back and forth. And they found that when that happened, the client started feeling better. Mm-hmm. And so over, I mean, this is EMDR has been around for, I think, 25 plus 30, a long time. 
I think it started in the 70s. Oh, yeah. yeah. So maybe, yeah. So but it's, it's really popular now, but it's been around for a long time. And so they've done a lot of research and basically EMDR is recreating REM sleep. Mm-hmm. So so when, you know, the easiest way to kind of describe it, if you have a dog and you know when you're sleeping and sometimes you can see their eyes moving or they're kind of like their foot's moving and you can see they're like really active in, in a dream, mm-hmm. that EMDR is recreating that that REM REM sleep. And they have found through studies that when you're in that REM sleep, you're actually emotionally processing life better than you do when you're not. And here's an interesting thing. Most people, when they're in major trauma, drama, guess what gets affected? Their sleep. Yeah. So you're in a traumatic experience or you just had one or you're having an argument with your partner or your kids or you're worried about something and you find that you're not sleeping very well at night, this is going to perpetuate the problem you're in. Mm -hmm. This is why people say like, it's so important to get sleep. It's so important to figure out how to get that. So when you do EMDR, you're recreating that REM state in the session. And you, you don't just, you can't just like do it automatically. There's, there's a series of questions that you ask to set up the session. Mm-hmm. And I studied this years ago. And so I sit down and usually the way it goes is that you would pick in a memory and in the way you, I describe it, it's, it's, it can't be like a whole memory. So let's say, let's say um, your, your parents were um, you grew up with parents that fought a lot like violent fighting Mm -hmm. you wouldn't sit down and do an emdr session on the whole fighting of your parents you would think of one specific memory like i remember this one time when my one parent was choking the other parent it's a very Mm -hmm. specific memory we would break it down and and i would document it and then i would ask a series of questions that will allow us to set it up so Mm -hmm. that we can start reprocessing it Mm -hmm. the amazing thing is once I reprocess with clients, and I think most practitioners have this, their memory starts to change. Yes. So it's not hypnosis. It's not that you suddenly just forget and have amnesia. Uh-huh. It's just that your perspective changes. Gabor Mati talks about this great concept, which I believe, which is it's not what happens to you. It's how you make sense of it. Yes. And, and so that's basically when it comes to EMDR is we're changing how you've made sense of the trauma. Yeah. And you're doing that by desensitizing the hooks yeah. that, that have hooked you, that you have been carrying around for 10, 20, whatever years. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's EMDR kind of like a, a short introduction. Mm-hmm. And also with EMDR, you can do the bilateral eye stimulation. You also, some people do headphones where it has a beep, beep, beep on each ear, and you would move your eyeballs with your eyelids closed back and forth, back and forth. Or you can do buzzing in the hands, which is a buzz, 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 buzz. And you would, excuse me, you would do the same. Um, They have lots of amazing devices out there. I still, to this day, still just use my hand. Mm -hmm. I, I, for me personally, you know, I get, I sit a little closer to my clients and I really, I really appreciate and respect that closer dis that closer connection with my clients and I'm taking them on a very deep journey and to have, for me personally, to have a light fixture and sit, you know, away and just kind of sit there taking notes. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like it, 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 it may not bring me so close into what the experience is for my client. So mm-hmm. I personally still like to do that. 
Yeah. So it sounds like you're also seeing a lot of clients in person that maybe yeah. you're not doing this so much over a video screen. No. Yeah. I, I see, I would say more than half my clients are in person right now. And I have done it on screen as well. Mm-hmm. I've learned that I just kind of move my, there is like a device you can get. I haven't gotten it, but I've moved my, my screen to the side and I can still do that. And I advise them like when I'm moving, um, always like extend your eye out. So it's not just a little bit of a movement. You want to try to get a bigger movement, right? A bigger range. Yeah. yeah. So I do, I practice brain spotting, which derived from EMDR and, um, yeah, on the screen, we might, might, it might end up being a spot they're looking at in their room and it's not on the screen. But one of the things that I've noticed from, from brain spotting is it seems to me, and I don't know if there's been research yet on this, but it seems to me like the brain waves, something about what we're doing with that, um, you know, the visual cueing and with the auditory uh, left brain, right brain stimulation is that I think we're getting people's brainwaves slowed down, right? Mm-hmm. Which would be also with REM sleep. Like, I think we're getting more into like the theta wavelength. And I also know the theta wavelength to be, you know, what our brain is primarily emitting when we are in hypnosis or in a deep state of meditation. Yeah. Or also what they found is with children up until the age of about seven, they are primarily also emitting theta waves which means they're in a highly hypnotizable state. So I find that all to be really interesting in that if we can help our clients access these states, they have more, um, it's easier for them to release, to have access to these this emotional stuff, unresolved traumas, whatever, to process those emotions and release them. And then their perspective can shift because there's no longer the fear, the, the upset, the emotion, whatever. Do you, mm-hmm. does that- do you resonate with that? I'm curious. Yeah, take. no, I think that's super fascinating. There's actually a yogic philosophy that it, it is at age seven that society has more of an imprint on a child. So they say that from conception until the age of three, the most important teacher is the mother. And from age three to seven, the most important teacher is the father. And at seven, society kind of takes a hold. And that basically the imprint that a child has for the primary personality and growth is really those first seven years. So that's really fascinating to hear that that they release those, those waves. Yeah. Uh, and I think too, you know, what I like about um, where science is at is that with the ability to image people's brains and measure brain waves and things like that, these more ancient or traditional healing practices are actually getting scientific validation, right? Yes. Because we can see that having people do these eye movements, having people breathe in certain ways, having them meditate or tap on acupuncture points, whatever it is, mm-hmm. we can see measurable changes in the brain. Yes. We know something is happening now. And I think that's great because it's helping to move these techniques, these more holistic, some Eastern influence techniques out of the woo-woo that it was right. we were growing up to something that actually has scientific backing. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so doc- the Dr. Amen clinic does brain scans <clears throat> and they, they look to see what your brain looks like and they can tell if it's a depressed brain or an anxious brain or, or addiction issues. Mm-hmm. And he was actually, he did a brain scans for a research study on a meditation called Kirtan Kriya. Mm-hmm. And he found that at, before and after the brain did change, that it was actually a more of a happier brain. And mm-hmm. in Kirtan Kriya, there's a, you do chanting and you're tapping on your fingers and you're doing a whole sequence for about 12 minutes. Yep. And it was, I saw him present 
over 10, 12 years ago on this meditation. It was really fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of research coming out on the how meditation like permanently changes the way the brain yeah. functions. Just like I think EMDR, brain spotting, and all these other techniques yeah. do as well. Yeah. It's almost like we have the ability now to rewire the brain. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, people ask like, well, how long should I meditate or how do I know? And it's just like, look, three minutes, studies show three minutes lowers your blood pressure. Mm-hmm. So I tell people like you literally, you get a sticky note, you put it by your bed, you put it on your mirror and you just have it, it says on there, did you meditate or meditate today? Mm-hmm. And you just pause and you just do it for three minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times people don't know like, well, how do I meditate? I can't sit silently. Mm-hmm. And there is something called relaxation induced anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that's for people when they get still, they actually feel worse. Yeah. So people like that, the best kind of meditation is the chanting or movement mm-hmm. meditations. Mm-hmm. So if you're Christian, you find a, you know, a prayer that you really love and you literally repeat it. You just sit and you repeat it. Mm-hmm. If you're open to other um, sound currents of other religious beliefs or um, from, you know, um, like Eastern languages, like Hindi or Punjabi or Sanskrit, then you, if you feel comfortable, you could just re- repeat again, there's one called Hami Ham mm-hmm. which is, you know, we are, we, we are one, like we're all connected in one. And you just, it's like Hami Ham and you're just reciting it again and again for three minutes, for seven minutes, for 12 minutes, for two minutes, for seven, you know, it doesn't matter, but the idea is just to do that. Yes. And And science has found that when you chant, your sound current comes out of your mouth and it goes into your ear and it hits your eardrum and then it bounces your hypothalamus and then it relaxes you. Mm -hmm. So there is, there's a reason there that it's good to chant out loud. Mm -hmm. And I often tell people like, if, you know, if chanting is really strange to you and, or you're religious, you're Jewish or you're Sikh or you're Muslim or you're Christian, go to your faith. There's lots of prayers. Mm -hmm. Find one that you really resonate with, find some music on it, or even just record yourself on your, on your phone and loop it. Yeah. And, and chant along because it's going to calm you. Meditation also has been scientifically proven to increase the grit, the GABA level in your Mm -hmm. frontal lobe and Mm -hmm. GABA is an amino acid that we can ingest. You can buy it at the store. I actually recommend it to clients for anxiety Mm -hmm. and you can, you can do the meditation and then create natural GABA in your brain, which helps you feel calmer. It's really fascinating what we now know, right? Um, So you're covering a few things. I want to come back to IFS. I'm going to forget. But now that you're talking about amino acids, I know that this is something you're also doing in your practice. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, um, I love, I love the idea of amino acids. So a little bit of background. So I first got an interest in amino acids let's see, my son's 20 when he was nine. So 11 years ago, I I started looking into amino acids because he was having some issues and I was refusing to put him on medication. I'm like, he's nine years old. I I have lots of reasons why I was not going to do that. So that was my perspective. If you're on medications, no judgment at all. Everyone's different. And that's what I chose for my kid. Mm-hmm. And I learned about amino acids in from a book called The Mood Cure by Julia Ross. It's it's online. She's actually hopefully in the process of rewriting it. It's a bit outdated, but it's a very good resource. Mm-hmm. And um, I started reading it and I I did the aminos with my son and it helped. It helped a lot. And 
Um, I've then since years later have gone back to study in, in a program and I have cert, I'm certified in level one. I'm doing the level two now and I do consultations a lot. And I've learned about amino acids, which are, there are these aminos that help the neurotransmitters to connect. Mm -hmm. So like for an example, 5-HTP is an amino acid that helps for serotonin. Mm -hmm. SSRIs help with serotonin. 5-HTP um, can convert into tryptophan, mm -hmm. but sometimes it doesn't. And L-tryptophan is what's in turkey. So, so, you know, people get sleepy, not because they ate so much, maybe it's a little bit of that, but they, they get sleepy because L-tryptophan makes you sleepy. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, the, it's the serotonin, it's the catecholamine, it's the GABA, it's the endorphins. And each of these different supplements help you to connect those neurotransmitters mm -hmm. to help your brain function more optimally. Yeah. And, and people have, a, you know, lower, I mean, there's a whole conversation on why is mental health is worse now than it's been in the past or, or if that's even true. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that, um, you know, diet, continued stress, working, working so hard and not having a relief and not having that downtime is going to increase depression, anxiety, and many other issues. Right. So I have found, which is amazing with amino acids. And on a side note, if you ever want to do a psychiatrist who does this, they're called a molecular psychiatrist. They're hard to find, but there are a few of them in the, in the country. So I don't know how many, but it's few. Mm -hmm. So when I work with a client doing aminos, I, it's so amazing because when we go through a series of questions and they answer them and, and there's like a code and, and it helps you be able to monitor and see the change, I'll, I'll retest them again. Mm -hmm. And we literally do trials in our session. And I have seen a change in clients in sometimes one minute wow. right in front of my face. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had the client once she came in and she was hysterically crying and just had just been, she was on disability and just was weeping all the time. Mm -hmm. And I gave her an amino acid. I gave her DPA known as d philalanine And within a minute, she stopped crying. Yeah. Wow. And she was still upset, but now I can work on the cognitive issues. Now I can go, we can work on the things that are bothering her or she's stuck in. But when you're so distraught, you mm -hmm. can't work on anything. Right. Yeah. And so it's just amazing. And she's been taking them for months and she feels amazing. She still has issues. She still has problems and she's working right. on them. And though she's a lot higher functioning. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, and this is the thing to uh, come coming back to, you know, our, our more fragmented medical and mental health system, which, which is, you know, go to this doctor for this, go to that doctor for that, you know, and so often, you know, I will recommend to my clients, like I, you're having these symptoms of depression and we're, you know, we're working within my scope of practice, even with my holistic techniques, and we're maybe still not seeing any, a whole lot of significant change can you go to the doctor and get just a regular blood workup or, or maybe going to a functional medicine doctor or a osteopath or maybe yeah. a, a naturopath, somebody who will look at these things. They have tests. They can actually yeah. check your neurotransmitter levels and your, I mean, your hormones and I don't know, they can measure yeah, all yeah. kinds of things now with their, with the testing and let's rule out that there, you know, maybe an imbalance of some sort that really is a chemical imbalance, but beyond just what psychiatry is looking at. Right. No, for, for certain, um, you know, like if you have IBS, 
that's going to infect your mental health. And it doesn't matter how much talk therapy you have. If you're not getting your IBS functioning better and under control, you're going to feel like you're hitting a wall. If you have a thyroid problem, if you have a, you know, you're not eating enough. Like I have clients will come in 11, 12 o'clock, one o'clock. I'm like, have you eaten today? No. And I'm just like, well, you're not, you're not feeding your brain. Like, it's not just about food in your stomach and releasing your, you know, stuff roughage afterwards. It's literally medicine for your mind, for your brain. And in people who have anxiety or depression should be, and I'm saying, I'm going to use the word should here, should be eating protein every three to four hours. Mm -hmm. And you should be eating the size of the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. If you're in severe, if severe depression and anxiety, you should be eating it maybe every two hours. Yeah. Omega oils help with really help with anxiety. You can, and yeah. you take it twice a day, always with food because it's considered a food. And I do like, I'm not a doctor and I tell people like I, I am certified in this and these are recommendations, but these are things you can buy over the counter. And of course you can always check with your doctor to, conf- you know, if you have any issues, um, or questions about. Yeah. And, you know, I, myself, um, as someone who have, has always had sleep issues, most of her life, um, when I was taking pharmaceutical things like trazodone, um, I would be left in the morning with this hangover, this kind of icky feeling. Um, and when I switched over to five HTP and eventually got on L tryptophan and GABA, I actually take L tryptophan mm-hmm. and GABA and at times I've take, taken yeah. ashwagandha, you know, I've experimented yeah. with a number of things. I sleep like a baby. I fall asleep. Um, I, I still wake up in the middle of the night, but I'm able to fall back asleep, you know, pretty easily. And there's no hangover, no side effects. And I just feel better using you know, more natural for myself, again, just a preference, but I find that the natural products work better for my body than, than some of the pharmaceuticals that come with a lot of side effects. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Yeah, I totally. I mean, and then the other thing too is that people I think misunderstand melatonin. And Uh I tell people melatonin, you actually only need a very small amount. Sometimes the smaller dose works better than a bigger dose. It's not like bigger doses make you more tired. No. Uh And, And you really like need like one to three milligrams and that's it. And here's the thing melatonin is only to help you fall asleep. It won't keep you asleep. Mm. What helps you stay asleep is what you were taking the L-tryptophan or magnesium physinate mm-hmm. help because it's a muscle, it relaxes the muscle. Right. So if you have a lot of anxiety during the day, right. what can happen is the anxiety gets stored in your body yeah. and then you lay down to sleep and you're asleep, but your body's still buzzing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so taking L-tryptophan, GABA, L-theanine, uh, magnesium citrate, it all helps, or sorry, physinate helps to relax the body and the mind from, from anxiousness. That's, that's really fascinating. Do you have any resources you suggest for people who want to find out more about this amino acid therapy? Yeah. So, um, I would check out the book, the mood cure, the diet cure. Um, Trudy Scott has a book that, let me think of the name, maybe I'll have to email it to you and you can put it in in the show notes. Yeah, It's really good. I think it's like diet and anxiety and it has really the, the, the whole gamut of what to do for anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then it's looking for molecular psychiatrists and also a lot of functioning medicine doctors will do aminos and some nutritionists like nutritionists with have that have more of a holistic approach Mm -hmm. can do that as well. So Mm -hmm. 
I wish it, I mean, I really think every doctor, psychiatrist, and therapist should be trained in aminos because it's such a simple, easy you know, solution to some really big issues. And there's what I love. They're not addictive. They're not habit forming. They don't have side effects. Mm -hmm. If you take something and it doesn't work, you just feel nothing or the worst, you might get a little headache. And then you take a vitamin C and it flushes the brain. Like it's just, it's amazing stuff. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. Well, I want to come back to IFS and then we'll, we'll move into winding it down and and all your offerings and things, but Tell us about IFS for people who don't know what that is. So IFS stands for Internal Family Systems Therapy. It's a technique that was developed by Richard Schwartz and from Boston. Again, a lot of Boston therapists out there. Um, And I studied with him actually with him directly in 2000, 1999 to 2000. And it's quite... it's really grown quite a bit since then. Yes, it has. Yeah. And so IFS has to do with going and doing inner work. I kind of, I do call it somatic work because you're going within yourself and you're connecting to your inner parts. And so IFS looks that we have multiple parts. We have the wounded child, we have the managers, and we have the firefighters. So the wounded child is the inner wound, the pain. Mm-hmm. The the managers is the part of us that we developed to manage ourselves so that we don't feel the pain. And then the firefighters is what we develop that if the managers don't do a good job and we get to the wound, the firefighters will act out so that we don't get to the wound. That's usually addiction. Yeah. So firefighters would be addiction, acting out, all those kinds of things, because it takes away like, like it's like screaming, like, look at me, look at me. Don't look at the wound. Don't look at the pain. Mm-hmm. And then we have what they call the Y self or the capital S self, which is this, that, that higher, that like the adult you, the wise you. And so when you're doing IFS is that you want to work with, with, you always want to be working is when you can, you can't, you need, a, you need, a, it's important to have a practitioner who's well versed in this style, because if you can't be in wise self, you need someone else to guide you to talk to these parts. Mm-hmm. If not, they get hijacked and then, you know, stuff can happen. And so what I really appreciate about IFS is that it really works on building internal trust, which helps us not be hijacked by our trauma drama. Yes. And, um, and so then there is ways that once you learn about a part within you, and it could be like, like I feel it in my, in my forehead. And so, you know, there's always a series of questions that you asked of how to connect with it. And, and depending on how the client responds is lets me know the practitioner lets me know if I move further in or if I completely back off, mm-hmm. because if we push through, then we're going to, we're going to usually going to activate a firefighter and then you know sometimes clients will leave and feel worse or they'll relapse or not that it's our fault but it's just like it's really about man helping them be respectful and work with those parts um so i i do that with a a lot of my work sometimes um with clients i'm doing emdr like if we find if i find like i hit like hit like we're reprocessing reprocessing and i just can't shift it Sometimes like right in the between, I'll stop and say, close your eyes. And I go right into IFS. I don't even tell them we're doing IFS. I just do it. Yeah. And then sometimes we'll come out and then we'll continue to reprocess. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this parts work, which you know, and, and has been known as psychosynthesis. Yeah. I think iterations and and part or parts mm -hmm. work. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of variations on it, but I found it really helpful when we learned it in grad school. I really gleaned a lot of insight into my own parts from that, and um, you can get creative with them too. Like we were kind of integrating creative expression. So like I remember doing a poster of my part it was like a collage and I had different images representing my parts and yeah get really creative with it too it can be really powerful work um and I think especially with couples you know like if you've stopped a couple in the middle of an argument and you ask them how old are you being right now mm -hmm. most of them are going to say seven years old 12 years old and that's almost always a, a part that has some unresolved trauma or or something where they're stuck yeah. right? They're acting out from that place, the fire yeah. or, or yeah. maybe whatever it may be, whatever that, if that part's angry, if that part is shut down, but like, it's really, really, um, I think key for couples work to be doing this more internal work yeah. to be able to, because how can you, uh, listen to what your partner's saying in that calm adult way, if you've got an inner child that's screaming, yeah. yeah. And that's a piece where you learn to be able to say, oh, just a second. And you go within your light and you say to that inner part of you, I'm with my partner. I'm the wise adult. I see you. I will talk to you after this conversation. And I need you not to hijack this situation mm -hmm. because it's in, why do you do that? It's in your best interest of your relationship. If you, if you unleash your inner wounds and anger and trauma onto your partner, you're just going to be stuck. Right. And probably rewounded because they're not going to respond in the way that you would want because you're acting out. Right, right. And this is the repetition, compulsion stuff that good old Freud talked about, like doing yeah. this thing over and over and over again, expecting a different kind of result and not getting anywhere, but re-traumatized. Yeah. So. yeah. And, and, you know, we tend to be attracted and fall in love with our unfinished business, which is the Holy yeah. Mago. Mm -hmm. So it is that sense of just because your partner triggered you doesn't mean they are trying to trigger you. And it's really looking at like, Hey, what am I making up? What is coming up for me? Am I projecting it? it this person I love, is this really like my perception of them really true? Right. And, and if you're just reactive, then you're not in your wise self. You're, a, you're in a reactive self. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People just don't understand that. So that's why I think it's so important. We're having these conversations and getting this info out there. So you have lots of resources. You have a book, you have a workshop, you have sessions. How can people find out more about all this and, and what you have to offer? So I have a website, mutternant.com, and on there I have over 60 plus meditation singles, and my book is on there. I actually have the second edition coming out in about a month-ish or so, mm -hmm. and I'm really proud of the second edition. And then I have a workshop that actually launches this month, um, but it hopefully will be on my website as a self-paced, and it's actually a parts workshop. It's called Soul Self, mm -hmm. and it's about, I'll be walking through all the participants, how to connect to the inner child, how to learn who they are and the stories that each of them have and how and you, you come out with a set of your own emotional nesting dolls. So I'm really mm. excited about that. Um, and I'm on, I'm, I'm on Instagram, just mutter Nan, mm -hmm. and um, that's probably the best way to find me um, on Spotify, YouTube is all my music is there. Yeah. You have a ton of that too. You're quite, you're quite prolific with, with all of that. So 
That's wonderful. And I see maybe even a painter or some. Um, no, this, uh, uh, no, my, my very dear friend painted this. And so um, she was going to paint over. I said, no, 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 I'll take it. So it's, <laughs> it's my background. <laughs> love it. I love that you've integrated all these wonderful techniques and the wisdom of traditional cultures. Um, I'd love to see our field evolve with more of that. I agree. Include more of that. Any final thoughts for us today? I'll leave you with my favorite quote, which is, it's not the life you live, it's the courage you bring to it. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. For being my guest today. Thank you, audience, for tuning in. If you like this episode, please do rate it, rate the podcast, like it, comment, share it, whatever you need to do so we can get this out there in the hands of more people who are seeking and looking for something that's going to help them. And I think some of these tools we've talked about today are, are really, really amazing and powerful. So please do share. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time on Kaleidoscope of Possibilities. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. This has been Dr. Adriana Popescu. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and share with others. To find out more about me, my guests, and more, please visit my website at adrianapopescu.org. See you next time.